Hello, and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Mari, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Mari. And I'm grateful to be here and grateful to be sober, and by the grace of God, good fellowship, Good sponsorship and a loving fellowship. I haven't been had a drink since the 10th of August 1984, and for that I am truly grateful. And as they say, if it doesn't impress you, it sure as hell impresses me. You know, um, because you know, as I heard someone say to me once, I don't think you can get here from where I'm coming from. Um, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. I'd like to thank Lindsay for inviting me to come to the Linwood Group and for picking me up. No mean effort to come all the way across town. Didn't um, charge you. No, he didn't. <laughs> but he may on the way, way back. <laughs> at, at present, I uh, I come every year to look after my two old aunts. They're the ones who came and dug me off Skid Row in Miami in 1980. And uh, this is a living amends. I come every year. They don't think I've changed. Um, <laughs> And I'm absolutely delighted to be sober and to be able to give back to some my family who have given me so much and that I caused so much heartache to. So I will just tell you what it used to be like, what happened and what it's like now. I was born in Glasgow. Uh, my family came from um, Shettleson, Tollcross, Shettleson, that area there. Um, and, you know, from when I could think, I knew there was something wrong with me. I didn't know what it was. You know, I just... I felt as if I didn't belong, my skin didn't fit, I felt as if I was on the outside looking in. So I always knew there was something wrong with me, and the reason I knew there was something wrong with me is because people were always saying to me, there's something seriously wrong with you. <laughs> and uh, it was really hard to find out what it was. Um, I was I was born into a Roman Catholic family. They, no matter what religion they were, they were never biased about any religion. I was never taught about bias. I was never taught anything about but how to be good, and I had absolutely no ability for how to be good. I knew automatically, intuitively how to be bad, and that was how my life was. I was educated by um, by the nuns uh, at Our Lady of St. Francis Senior Secondary School for young ladies. Um, you know, I had a high IQ, and um, Al-Anon will not agree with this, but lots of alcoholics have a high IQ. And the only thing a high IQ has has done for me is I've never completed anything I've ever started. You know, I get bored very quickly. Um, But anyway, being uh, educated by these nuns, I did not do well. The reason I did not do well is because I never knew how to take instruction. I did not like authority. I did not like anybody tell me how to do do anything. Consequently, at age 15... I don't know if you know, the Franciscan nuns, they have big sleeves where they keep their weapons, you know. <laughs> and um, I, was, I was sitting one day and I was doing something I shouldn't have been doing and faster than a speeding bullet, she pulled out this ruler and hit me over the fingers with it and I figured if she could give it, she could take it. And um, I was uh, expelled. <laughs> and just before my long-suffering mother... Uh, came to pick me up, the mother superior said to me something that was to be very prophetic. 
She said, if you memorize that sign above my door, it might do something for your measly little life. And I looked at the sign and it said, of courtesy it is much less than courage of heart or holiness, but in my walks to me it seems that the grace of God is in courtesy. And way back then I wanted nothing to do with the grace of God and I wanted nothing to do with courtesy. But many, many years later, coming out of the gutter, I know it was the grace of God that brought me through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and it was the great courtesy that you extended to me that made me begin to feel a part of society again. So it came true for me. I, uh, I went on to do nursing at Stop Hill General Hospital. Similar thing happened, did not get on well with the sisters and I loved to party and you had to curfew and I didn't like a curfew and they'd be waiting for me when I'd throw in my tight skirt and climb in and just my knickers <laughs> through the door and the, the nuns would be waiting, the, the sisters would be waiting for me and I was continually on the carpet and as would always happen to me, when I was in the wrong, I would leave. I would leave also before I got expelled or I would leave before people asked me to leave. Everywhere I went, I left a trail of disaster. You know, my mother used to take me to Ireland every year. I have some family in Drogheda. And they used to, they used to say when I came through the door, it's herself. You know, it's herself. And you know, they'd look at my mother, they'd look at me, they'd look at my mother, and they'd say to my mother, she's not right, you know. And if you're not right in Ireland, if you're not right in Ireland, you're not right anywhere, trust me. Uh, I think Sigmund Freud said you cannot psychoanalyze the Irish mind, and that's quite true. So then I decided I was getting out of nursing, and I went down to London, England. And um, uh, London, England, I did some nursing down there in Tooting, and then I joined BOAC. And at BOAC, I was an overseas escort. I was 21 years of age. I had on the BOAC uniform for the first time in my life. I had a persona. And I thought, you know, I'll be able to, I'll be the same as all these people. I have on the same uniform. I'll be able to watch how they act because I was always a chameleon. I could be anything you wanted me to be until I didn't want to be that way anymore. And then what happened is I was on the planes and I was, uh, I used to, what I used to do is I would travel out with, with people who were sick to India, Africa, and I would come back as a passenger. I didn't have to serve meals. The only thing about that wonderful job is I'm on a plane and I don't like people. And I'm having panic attacks and it was not a good place to be. And at age 23, having had panic attacks since I was 13, having all these feelings inside of me like I was different. No, I don't even fit in BOAC. And I thought to myself, you know what it says in the big book? Self-manifested in various forms is the root of our problem. It says we got to get rid of the self. And there is no way of getting rid of self without his aid, God's aid. I didn't know my problem was self. I thought my problem was everything else but self. So I said to myself, <laughs> self, if you get married, you'll be well. If you get married, then you'll be the same as everybody who's married. You see, I was running along throughout the world looking at people's outside and comparing them with how I felt inside. And there was no match. 
So I decided I was going to find a nice man, and I knew what I wanted. I wanted money. I wanted him to be beautiful. <laughs> I wanted him to have class. Me. <laughs> That's what I thought when you came in the door, sweetheart. <laughs> so I did. I met a very nice man. I married a very nice man who was... I met him through BOSE. So I married a nice man, and he married a figment of my imagination. <laughs> And we went, he took me to live in Kingston, Jamaica. And in Kingston, Jamaica, I had everything that money could buy. Uh, he owned, we owned five homes on the island. Um, we had chauffeurs and gardeners and maids and, and I had everything you could ever want. And after a year, my first son was born. I was 25 years old. I hadn't drank, and I remember holding that little baby and thinking, this is something beautiful for me. Being a mother is going to make me well. And just after he was born, I thought I was going insane. I thought, no, I'm going to lose it forever. I'm going mad. Nothing external could help me. I was trapped in a panic and a feeling of madness. And they got a doctor, and he wanted to give me Valium. And somebody said, have a drink, give her a drink to calm her down. And I wouldn't drink before. Jamaica has 151 proof rum. It is beautiful. <laughs> I drank that 151 proof rum and it went all the way deep down inside of me like a piece of velvet. And it wrapped itself around every raw nerve ending I had had inside of me for 25 years. You see, alcohol is the ability to go down deep inside of me and still in the madness and the blackness and whatever else is going on in my soul. Alcohol is the ability to take me and put me right there. Do you know where there is? There is no there. <laughs> it's an illusion. It's an illusion that I will pursue time after time. I had another drink. I had another one, and I had found my, my magic, my magical elixir. You see, I did not know that what alcohol was doing for me, according to the big book, is what the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is to find an appendix to. The yeah, spiritual awakening that will come from working the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous will give me a spiritual awakening. And what a spiritual awakening is defined by us is a change of personality. And psychiatrists can work with us for 25 years and never produce what the 12 steps can do for us slowly, incrementally. You see, what happened to me is alcohol changed my personality. It induced chemical psychosis. What is chemical psychosis? It only happens to 6 or 7% of the population of the world. And what happens is, when I take that alcohol inside of me, the world that had seemed untenable, unlivable, everybody who I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't have a decent conversation with you because I was born on high alert, for God's sake. You know, everything with, even people I was around were always jumping. My family are permanently damaged from having me around. You know, I was, I, you know, 
I, I, you see, I think the difference between a drug addict and an alcoholic is a drug addict takes drugs to feel the way I was born. On my <laughs> you know? You see, alcohol, according to Dr. Silkworth in the big book, will give me a sense of ease and comfort. You see, if that is normal, an alcoholic drinks to feel normal. A drug addict's already at normal. He takes drugs to get out of normal. I want a little normal living. I want to just cruise the world the way I've been seeing everybody all my life do. And that is what alcohol did for me. And I knew. I immediately drank on a daily basis. And I drank copious amounts of alcohol. Copious amounts. And I, um, I went on like that for four years. And God forgive me. By the 12 steps, I have been able to find some forgiveness. But I drank every day I was pregnant with my second child. And I never meant to do that. But you see, already I had crossed the invisible line. I am one of those who had lost the power of choice in drink. I could do, I could not stop it. You know, people used to say to me, don't you have any willpower? You ever tried willpower in a case of diarrhea? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And thank, by the grace of God, you know, my son didn't have fetal alcohol syndrome. I shouldn't say the grace of God because I know wonderful people that have children who are born with fetal alcohol. I don't think God's grace was any more for me than it is for them. Let's just say my son wasn't born with fetal alcohol, and for that I am truly grateful. And uh, by this time, the cucumber had become a pickle. And I was, uh, I used to go to the country club in Jamaica, and people used to be so happy to see me, and they'd invite me to all their parties. And now I go to the country club in Jamaica, and if someone says something I don't like, I will take up a bottle and break it and challenge them to a duel. <laughs> and that is not what you do in the country clubs in Kingston, Jamaica. <laughs> and my husband, and, and also I almost beat up a dry cleaner uh, who did not clean my clothes properly, and um, the police were called. And my husband was called, and he was a gentleman, and his family were shocked at my behavior, and he'd lecture me. And my, my husband, all of my, I've been married four times, and all of my husbands suffer from a slight nervous tick, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and how, how it came about with my first husband is, uh, you know, he would, if I misbehaved, you know, at the country club in Jamaica, he'd, he'd run me home, and he'd sit and lecture me. And I'd be drunk, and I'd tell him, if you fall asleep tonight, I'll kill you. <laughs> so he would be watching me from the corner of his eye, and he couldn't drink, so two drinks and he was toast. So he'd be sitting going, <laughs> and every now and then I'd pass out, and he'd run and lock himself in the room. And one night... He fell asleep before me, and I hit him over the head with a piece of mahogany, which is a hard piece of wood. And he had no sense of humor. <laughs> and he called my mother in Glasgow, God bless her soul, and he said, there's something seriously wrong with your daughter. My mother said there was always something wrong. <laughs> my in-laws came and spoke to me, and they said, you've got to find a spiritual solution. Or not, well, they didn't use the word spiritual solution, but what they did say to me is, they meant that. They said, 
you're supposed to be a Catholic, but now you say you're an atheist. You don't believe in God, you don't believe in anything. Your behavior, we don't understand it because they didn't know how much I drank. They said, you've got to find something, something that's going to help you because there's something wrong with you. And I had a helper called Gloria, a maid called Gloria, and she was she belonged to the um, charismatic meeting uh, for the Bible Society of Kingston, Jamaica. So one night she took me downtown. I was the only white person in the room, and it was a charismatic jumping for Jesus meeting. <laughs> and um, they prayed over me, and I uh, I like to think I had some rum, and I was jumping higher. I gave them some new moves, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't work. Then I had other friends who were very wealthy people, but they were Rastafarians. They had decided to become Rastafarians, and they were always trying to get me to smoke ganja. Now, I would never, ever smoke. They used to say to me, Mary, come try a little sense of me, oh, man. <laughs> Look how the liquor's making your eyes red. <laughs> I said, I don't want nothing that's going to screw up my brain. I'll stick to liquor. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, they took me up into this jumping, this uh, um, Rastafarian thing, and they all read from the Old Testament. We up in the mountains. They're very peaceful people. They call God Jah. And I watch them, and they have this big spliff, and it's so big you can't even see their face, you know. <laughs> and they go, I just want to bellow out, man. <laughs> have a little vision. <laughs> and they'd lie down and meditate. That's not me. When I drink, I want justice. When I drink, I want action. When I drink, I want love. <laughs> I will eventually end up lying down whether I want to or not. <laughs> but not right now. So that didn't work. I mean, I was so clueless about it. My, my gardener, Django, was the happiest guy I'd ever seen. He smiled from morning till night. And he was growing this weird plant in my back garden. <laughs> and I said to him, what is that? It doesn't seem to do anything. He said, it's Jamaican spinach, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> I found out later that it was ganja, but anyway. <laughs> I used to live on Hope Road in Kingston, and Bob Marley lived across the road. And... Bob Marley was going out with a friend of mine. She'd been a Miss World, Cindy Breakspear. She'd been a Miss Jamaica, and then she'd been a Miss World. Her, Cindy, her name was Cindy Breakspear. And he was going out with Cindy Breakspear, and he didn't like me because I was a drunk. And Rastafarians do not like alcohol. It is banned from their religion. I didn't like him because he was a pothead. And I thought that he had brought down the neighborhood because his record producer... Chris Blackwell had given him a beautiful big great house on Hope Road, two doors down from the Prime Minister's house. And Bob used to feed all these people. They'd all come to his garden when he was off a gig, and he'd feed all these people. And he was a humanitarian. And I was full of, I was selfish, self-centered, self-worn right. I love my children with every fiber of my being, but I'm drunk morning, noon, and night. I have a maid there. My husband sees me waking up with a bottle, of, a glass of rum sitting on my chest. I haven't spilled a drop. And he just says to me, maybe you should cut down a little. Because he needed a reality check. He was in deep denial, you know. And my friends tried to talk to him, and he didn't want to hear. Because, you see, it was cast aspersions that he had an alcoholic wife. 
So I was left to just do what I wanted to do. One day I'm with, uh, I'm in Mullins Garage on Trafalgar Road in Kingston, and I had a BMW, and Bob had a BMW, and this is a story. He, I'm standing kind of waving in the breeze with my cigarette holder, and he's there with two of his rasters getting his car filled up, as I am. And he comes up and he said to me, Mary Charlie, you think you're so smart. You're a hedonist and a narcissist, and you care about nobody but yourself, which is true. <laughs> he said, do you think you're so smart? What does BMW stand for? I said, Bavarian Motor Works. He said, no, man, it means Bob Marley and the Whaler. <laughs> anyway, the, the, the inevitable happened. The heat was on. I wanted to leave the island. The island was getting too small for me. I divorced my husband. I took my two little boys. They were nine and four. And uh, he didn't want me to take the children off the island. And I told him, if you don't, I will publish something in the newspaper. Because that's the kind of person I was. I was not a nice human being at all. It was all about me. I didn't think about my poor children. I was a chronic alcoholic. I should never have been allowed to leave the island with my children. But that is the depth of my selfishness. I came back to Glasgow, and I was just here a couple of weeks, and my family told me about my drinking. And I knew I had to get out of here. And a guy I had been seeing in Jamaica, he was a Canadian citizen, he gave me the option that I love, let's get married, and I'll take you to Canada. I thought, what a great idea, drink Canada dry, here I come. <laughs> and he, um, he was a nice man. Um, and he thought he could help me. That's the truth of it. I just used him. And he took me to Alberta. I don't know if you know Alberta. And when we landed in Alberta, it was minus 40. Very cold. And um, by this time, I'm shaking so much, I can't get my drink up in the morning. And uh, I tried the old scarf trick. I don't know if you've ever tried the <coughs> scarf trick. You tie the scarf around the glass and you kind of haul it up. <laughs> it's, it's not good. It kind of rattles your teeth a bit, you know. So I realized I had a Valium deficiency. And um, I, I got a job as a pharmaceutical rep. And the guy I married was a born-again Christian. Now, I'm a nice man. He thought he could help me. The only problem is he didn't work. <laughs> And uh, he would stay home and look after my two boys, and I would... My territory was southern Alberta, Saskatchewan, and B.C. It was a huge territory. I'm a blackout drinker on the road. And um, I came home one day, and he was arguing with my children, and I sent him away, because that's what I did. I used to... I was a user of people. I know my little boys and I are there, and... Uh, it was a nightmare for them. I never physically abused my children, but I would bring men home I shouldn't have brought home. I would go out intending to be back for their school. I would drink, wake up lying on barroom floors. Um, it was a terrible life for them. And I developed a horrendous case of alcoholic telephonitis. 
I don't know if anybody here has ever <laughs> suffered from that. Alcoholic telekinitis is a phenomenon that never attacks in the day. It usually approaches around midnight. <laughs> when you're sitting alone with your jug and you want to call somebody and tell them how you've been screwed by the world. <laughs> but you don't want to call anybody nearby because they might come. <laughs> so I'd call Scotland and... <laughs> You know, I forget about a time change. And when they, I'd wake them up, I'd pass out. And they don't know the geography of Canada. They'd call Vancouver and say, could you just go and see how she is? <laughs> they don't know I'm miles away from that. And eventually they came and they told me I had early menopause, which is what you call Gaelic rationalization, and uh, put me in detox. And in detox in Calgary in 1979, it was just me and five Native Canadians five Indians and uh, they, I got the first idea about the brotherhood of alcoholics and I was having epileptic well not epileptic seizures but alcoholic seizures and DTs and they would hold my soup to me and my coffee to me when I was shaking too much to hold it by myself when I'd have a seizure they'd put the belt in my mouth they told me they were in to drink in to clean, um, 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 get dry for the summer and I realized that this was a pattern with them. And I never heard about AA and detox, and I got out of there. My family thought I was cured. They went back to Scotland. I decided I'd go back to Jamaica because the father hadn't uh, supported my children for two years. I'd had no money, no child support, and also I knew I was hopeless. So I decided I would um, go back to Jamaica. And when I went back, the father asked if he could have the boys for a week and they were gone for 13 years. And um, I had rented an old rundown hotel in Kingston. And um, when I phoned his house, he was married again. And uh, I said, what time are you bringing my boys? He said, you won't be getting them back. You're a drunk, you're a lush. And if I... Uh, he said, he who holds the gold makes the rules. And if you try and do anything, I'll put my son on the stand. And I went to the police station, I got two police jeeps, my custody order, and the policeman had machine guns, and we went up to this big old great house where the father lived, and it was a huge old great house, and it had big railings all around this big balcony, and my sons were locked behind there. And I said to my eldest son, bring the key. He said, Mommy, I'm not coming to you, because you're going to kill my brother and I driving with us drunk. I don't want to be with you anymore. You have to stop drinking. And then the gardener came and threw me down the stairs and the um, police pulled out the guns and I said, let's go. I went back, I took two bottles of Valium and 151 proof rum, enough to kill a horse. But as you know, alcoholics don't die easy. <laughs> We're hard to dead. You know, I tell people, you know, when they say to me, if I drink again, I'll be dead, I say, you wish. <laughs> Some of us live forever drinking, you know. And um, a psychiatrist came to see me the next morning and told me something that was very observant, intellectually correct, and definitely relevant to my condition. The psychiatrist said to me, you mustn't do that anymore. living in an old rundown hotel in Kingston where all the expats lived, the ones that had come and the sun was there undoing. And um, we, you know, 
at this stage I'm quite hopeless and um, I can't see my children. I had to go to court and sign over custody of my boys. I wasn't allowed to see them. Nobody I ever knew would ever talk to me again. And you know, an alcoholic of my type, this is not a, we laugh a lot in here, but it's a horrible illness for men and women in equal measure. And what would happen to me is I'd find a man who drank like me and we'd drink and he'd be a tourist and he'd have these dreams that one day I will get that wife back in Chicago. I'll get that big house and I would think one day I'll get my children back and I'll get that lifestyle back. Him and I would wander off into the enchanted cottage. The only thing is the sun comes up. The pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization of being with a stranger one more time. And I'd walk out that hotel one morning as if it was prearranged and a car came by with my ex-husband and his new wife and my two boys. And the next day the father said, if you don't leave this island, I'll kill you. And I knew he would. And he gave me the money he owed me, the back children support. I went to Miami. I didn't know anybody. I wanted to drink myself to death. And I got a little apartment. I'd drink and pass out, leave my door open. They'd come in and steal my clothes. They'd steal my furniture. They'd take that which I had to give and that which I did not have to give. I'm a woman alcoholic and I'm hopeless. And I ended up living at the bottom of Lincoln Road on Miami Beach. And all I had was two garbage bags, and in one of them was every piece of letter my family, my children had ever written me. And in the other one was an old statue of Venus. And um, funnily enough, I think a book by Carl Jung called, um, I can't remember, something about the soul. And um, at this, you know, coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. And what I did not know is that my father, who never drank, had retired from sea. And one day he said to my mother, I don't know where my lassie is. I'm his only daughter. I've got one brother. I don't know where my grandchildren are. He said, I'm going for a walk. And it was three o'clock in the morning and he went out and dropped dead in the street. At the same time, I was living in the street. And one time I read this, uh, Scott Fitzgerald, he's an American author who died of alcohol-related problems. He wrote that in the real dark night of the soul, it's always three o'clock in the morning. I'd sell my blood to buy liquor until they wouldn't take it anymore. And uh, one day I panhandled off an old woman, Joyce McNeil, an old English woman who used to live in Kingston, Jamaica, and who now lived in Fort Lauderdale. And um, she, she'd met my family when they'd come to Jamaica. She contacted them. And my aunts that I'm looking after now came to Miami. Oh, she came back to me. She said, you have to call Glasgow. Your father died. You have to call Glasgow. And I called and my aunts said, my, my mother wouldn't be able to. My brother was devastated. So they came. And uh, they cried when they saw me. And every time I come now, they say, how are your feet? Because when they found me, my feet were so swollen with alcohol that all I could get on was a rubber flip-flop. They were like a ten and a half. And because of the heat, the rubber had stuck into the soles of my feet and in between my toes, and it had to be dug out. And uh, my feet are what they remember the most. Yeah. And um, they, they sobered me up. There was a warrant out for my arrest. We found out, so they put me on a plane. I didn't want to come back here. I went to Canada. 
and uh, <clears throat> stayed with some friends. I uh, met a man again that I'd known for many years. He thought he could fix me. And the first time I tried to kill him, uh, he took me to a psychiatrist. I'm not a fun girl when I drink. <laughs> and the second time, they put me in the mental institution. And I, I am the classic textbook alcoholic. It is by the grace of God that I'm sitting here today. There's no road here from where I'm coming from. I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'm beyond human aid. I am beyond. I was in the mental institution so many times, they called me a retread. And I'd go in there, and I'd never tell them the truth. And I'd be violent, and they'd put me in restraints, and they'd put me in the suicide watch unit, or they'd put me in the homicide watch unit, because I was crazy. Or else I'd go in in the fetal position, just, just done. And the last time I was taken, <laughs> it's, it's quite fun being in there, you know, I used to love it. And, you know, I mean, because they used to give me oblivion, compliments in the government 22 hours a day, and they'd just wake me up for food. And the only excitement we ever have in there is we all get the same issue with slippers and coats and everything, and it's when someone would drop the cigarette button, the paper slippers. And they'd be too full of drugs to do anything but watch it. Uh, you know, because, I mean, we were completely exhausted, you know. And the last time I was there, I was taken by the police, and I was in a lot of trouble. And at Edmonton, Alberta. And just before I was being discharged, I had to, he said, we're discharging you. You've been in for a while because you're a mental patient, but you have to go to court. And he wrote something to try and keep me out of prison. And it had three diagnoses, chronic alcoholic, abnormal personality, and depressive. And I went to court, and the prosecuting attorney wanted to put me away, and the defense said, Your Honor, this woman has suffered tragic social circumstances. And I got out of there, and one night I was sitting drinking myself sober. I don't know if you've ever been there. And I picked up the phone, and I phoned AA. They had brought AA into the hospital, but I had never heard anything because I was so full of drugs. And they used to say to me, they told me afterwards, they used to say to me, do you have hope? And I'd say, I have no hope. And a man came and 12-stepped me. He was a Meti, which is an Indian, a French Indian. He had 28 years sobriety. And he sat down and he told me his story. And he asked me to tell him a little bit of mine. And for the first time in my life, he said to me, I think you're one of us. And I said, Stan, I know I'm an alcoholic, but I'm nuts. I have a psychiatric report that says I'm nuts. He said, Mary, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is like 12 adjustable wrenches. They fit any nut that comes through the door. <laughs> <laughs> and those are words of wisdom. Um, my dry date is 10th of August, 1984. I'd, I'd had one slip. On the 9th of August, 1984, some people from AA came and took me to a meeting. Don't ever say you can't take a dry drunk to a meeting, uh, a wet drunk to a meeting. I was in very bad shape. They told me I was shaking so much, strangers were waving back at me. <laughs> and that night, a little gal from AA spent the night with me, and the next day she said, I'm going to leave you now because you're a loser. And I only stick with winners and Alcoholics Anonymous. But before I go, I'm going to ask you to kneel down and say the third step prayer. I said to her, I kneel for nothing. And then somebody said, think of your children's eyes. And what I thought about was the previous Christmas I had just been out of discharge from the mental institution and I was full of drugs and I wanted to see my boys 
And I called my family in Scotland and said, can you speak to their father? I'm not drinking. See if I can have my boys in Jamaica for Christmas. And they called down and said, spoke to the father. He said, well, if she stays at this hotel, it's the Pegasus Hotel, and I can check on her every day, she can have the kids for a week. My boys were so excited. And I bought their presents. And I got on the plane in Edmonton and I got off in Toronto. And I bought a bottle of vodka. And I got off in Kingston and I was so drunk I couldn't walk. And my sons were at the airport with the person who'd brought them to the airport. <clears throat> and I fell down drunk in front of them. And the person who brought them said, You won't be seeing your mommy this time, son. I led them away. And I called my mother. And I spoke to my mother. My mother said, What happened to my big lassie? What happened to my beautiful big lassie? She said, I want you to get on the plane and remember the courage of your ancestors. That's what she said to me. Remember the courage of your ancestors. And get on that plane and go back to Edmonton with dignity and call me. And I got on the plane. And I did not know my mother was dying of ovarian cancer. And that is the grief I caused my family. And... <clears throat> So that's what I thought about. I knelt down, I held her hands, and I repeated the third step prayer after her. God, I offer myself to thee. And from that moment to this, I've had no desire for a drink. Some unmerited gift of grace was given to me. Or, William James is mentioned in our big book. He wrote The Varieties of Religious Experience. And in The Varieties of Religious Experience, William James, he was a pragmatist, and he was running around seeing why these people... <coughs> He had one set of people called dipsomaniacs. That's what he used to call alcoholics. And these guys used to live on Skid Row. And overnight they had had like a change of personality and some religious experience. And now they were running midnight missions and they were caring for the poor and they were caring for people. And he interviewed them all and he says, what happened to you all? And it was his, 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 his synopsis was that what had happened was that all of them had reached a place of absolute and complete despair. And I think that that despair is the aperture that opens up to let in God's grace. Uh, I went on and um, I had a great sponsor. They told me, get a big book, get a sponsor, get active. Go to 90 meetings in 90 days. If you don't like what you hear, we'll gladly refund you your misery. <laughs> they told me I was impulsive, compulsive, and repulsive, and that I had to learn how to behave, and that this, if I couldn't respect anything in my life, I would have to respect the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I was living in oil country, Alberta. They used to call me Alberta Crude. <laughs> but they told me I, if I respected the A, I would not, never use a swear word in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the men were wonderful to me. I was not looking good when I came into AA. I, I spoke to my old sponsor, Carol, recently, my first sponsor. And I said to Carol, a lot of my sponsees are being 13-stepped. I was never 13-stepped. She said, do you remember what you looked like when you came out? <laughs> she said, we used to take you to meetings in a shopping cart. <laughs> you couldn't even walk, for God's sake, she said. And I got... I got lots of love, and I, I went on, and um, I'll just speed it up and finish. I uh, found out my boys were going to be, oh, by the way, I did my fourth and fifth very quickly because I hated myself. 
I had to. I did my amends very quickly. So what I could, you know, it was ongoing. I heard my boys were going to be in Toronto. My oldest son was going to be in Toronto for schooling for a year. My sponsor and I called AA in Toronto. Some people met my plane. They took me to the YWCA. I went to all the meetings downtown Toronto. I got a great sponsor, Rini, who died just a few years ago with 53 years sobriety. Active every day in AA. I got an apartment and um, made amends to my son for a year. Got married. I don't have time to tell you about that, but got married in AA. It was, I loved him, he loved me, but you think the light in the eyes of the people's spirituality sometimes is psychosis, and that was me. It takes a long time. It takes a long time. And that's, and I, I've been active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I went back to Jamaica in sobriety. The, my sponsor told me to go back and make amends to the island. <laughs> and uh, my sons came back to live with me when they were uh, 19 and 24. My eldest boy got married on Vancouver Island and he asked me to come out with his father and walk him down the aisle. And I've, he's given me three little grandchildren who have never smelled alcohol in my breath. My youngest boy got married in full Scottish dress in a Ukrainian Orthodox church <laughs> and danced with me to a tune called Mama. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous is my dedication and my love. It is the wonderful people who have gone before me. It is people who have gone before all of us that have kept these doors open. I don't want AH change. I love it just the way it is. I don't want the father taken out. I don't want atheist diagnostic groups. I don't want anything but the AA, the pure AA that I have had because I want it to be here in case my children. I will finish with something our co-founder Bill Wilson said. Bill Wilson said, Alcoholics Anonymous is not a success story. Rather, it is a chronicle of a colossal human failure turned to usefulness by the divine alchemy of a loving God. And thank you for having me here tonight. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.